inspiration, enlightenment, and insight on how to get what you want and how to keep it. We could have been anything that we wanted to be, and it's not too late to change it. We'd be delighted to give it some thought. Maybe you'll agree that we really ought to. And now, here are your hosts. Paul Williams, and Tracy Jackson. We are back in New York, and I'm sitting across from Miss Tracy Jackson, and... How do you know that? What's that? How do you know that? I know that because I'm sober <laughs> and answer. conscious, and, and, you know, everything still works, including my powers Jackson's. of observation and my, my memory and all. And, uh, and it you have your mailbox was, slot. I was in Nashville uh, last no, night before last. I was in Nashville for the ASCAP Country Awards. And an absolute amazing sort of, and I have to share this. This was just, you know, our Super Soul Sunday was on, was replayed on Sunday. Watched it, and thank God so many nice people went out and bought the book. We have to thank the people that, that, that are perhaps listening now for the first time. And... Thank them for going out and getting the book. But what happened that was interesting is right after our Super Soul Sunday, they they ran again a Super Soul Sunday with President Jimmy Carter. And I turned to Mariana and I said, damn. I, well, I didn't say it like that. I just said, damn. I've always wanted. He's he's the one living president I haven't met. And, I, and, and I've been a huge fan. I would. It kills me. I want to meet President John, or President Carter, President Johnson. You President can't re- You can't meet President Johnson. I'm sorry. I can't Paul. meet President no, Johnson. Cannot. Well, perhaps I will someday. But, well, not at the moment. But I wanted to meet Jimmy Carter, and so I get on a plane. I fly to. You could have just built a house with Habitats for Humanity and done it. Pardon? You could have just gone and joined Habitats for Humanity. Well, Mariana and built a had house. done that. Mariana was, went to Mexico with him and and served. She wrote an article called "1700 for Lunch." No problema. She she was working in, you know, in the kitchen, the VIP oh. kitchen, serving serving Mrs. Carter and some of the people there. At any rate, I go to 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 Nashville, and in the while I'm on the plane, it they they managed to work it out so he can come and present an award to Tricia Yearwood. At the ASCAP Country Music Awards. So on the day after I said, I, I wish I could meet Jimmy Carter. You met Jimmy Carter? I got to meet Jimmy Carter. It Someone was, was so, listening. I mean, oh, my God. It was like, you know, it's you know, it's the same sort of thing how we both felt when we met Oprah. And working with Oprah, it's like you've known him so long. There's such a level of comfort from her. And I had that same feeling with Jimmy Carter. I mean, I just, he just felt like an old friend. He's, he does ex-president as well as anybody in the world, I think. Bill Clinton does ex-president. Pretty Bill well. Clinton does ex-president, and I just I just had dinner in the Stark Hearing Foundation with Bill Clinton and W. So oh, I've done I've done I have three presidents Such in the an last honor six to weeks. Sit in this little chamber with you on a mic here. Oh my God, it's, it's so exciting though. I mean, you got to understand, I'm trailer trash from the Midwest. No, we are so, so I, I met to... Clinton briefly, and I spent a weekend with Jerry Ford. I mean, I didn't spend a weekend with Jerry Ford. That sounds like really weird. No, I spent come on, a I mean, come on. I you didn't can spend a weekend with Jerry. You I mean, I spent a weekend now. in. Both pa- gone, I know I did not. No, truth. I did not spend a weekend with Jerry Ford. He, he was like? in his nineties, and I went down. If you couldn't husband. perform, he'd forgive you. Uh, no, he was. <laughs> that, no, we can't. Oh my God! I can't. You just said no. We went down to, we went down to Palm Springs, and and spent some time with with Betty and and Jerry Ford, and uh, <laughs> he well, was adorable. He was absolutely yeah. adorable, and yeah. I and I. Did I mean I didn't vote for him? I can say that now. Um, I didn't tell him that, but 
I found him to be totally charming. And I'll tell you something. He did ex-president pretty well, too. He did ex-president. And I think, I think, and I wonder if they would all admit this. I think being an ex-president is easier than being a president. Yeah. I think probably anything is easier than being a president. I didn't love him as president, but W has done ex-president pretty well. You know, he's gone away. He hasn't, like, bugged people. He's just gone back to Texas and done his own thing and... I don't think he's been as proactive as these other guys. I mean, yeah. Clinton and and, well, Clinton and, is... and 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 W's father have gone out there and and done a lot of. George well, Clinton Bush, doesn't stop, George... and if he gets back in the White House, he's going to be a force. Yeah, um, George W. and uh, Bill Clinton spoke at my daughter's graduation from Tulane. Together. To yeah, exactly. Wow. Uh, For those yeah, of was, you who yeah, are wondering, Andrew, you know they were they've worked a lot. The senior Bush and and Bill Clinton. Have oh, they're like buds. They're, they're BFFs. Pals. They are BFFs. They're BFFs. But Jimmy Carter's done amazing things too in the last what is it, like forty years. Yeah, he's been an ex president for forty. And years. he came to to do you know to introduce or to give actually give the award. The, you know, to to Trisha Yearwood from Memphis, where he'd spent the entire day swinging a hammer. I mean, it's just you know and. He, it's just impressive, you know. It's really impressive to see somebody at I think ninety four. Is he ninety four? I mean, he's not, I don't think he's that old. Is he ninety? Like you know, 90, he just turned ninety. I think ninety, yeah. and he's not well. He's announced he's not well. He has yeah, cancer. Yeah, you know what? He's dealing Bless with it. You know, his heart. he's dealing with it. And I just so I wonder I w- what kind of an ex president Donald Trump would be. <laughs> oh Let's God. hope we never find out. <laughs> oh, God. there you go. There Let's you go. hope we never so, find out. And that's our politic talk for the day. Yeah, and we have a guest who I have. You know, when I was in early sobriety, I'm I'm 25 years sober. Really, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, you did know that. Of course, you did. Right. But in early sobriety, this book came out called Postmortem, with a character that I fell in love with named Kay Scarpetta. She was a, a medical examiner. And great crime novels written by Patricia Cornwell. And I, and I just became a huge fan. And the 25th book just came out. It's called Depraved Heart. She actually quotes lyrics she, the, the, from We've Only Just Begun in the uh, in the book, which is such a, a I mean, that, I'm sorry, that's just, that's a Polly Giggle moment to go, oh, my God. And the great thing about it is, is that is, it's the killer Who's like kind of giving her, as she says in the book, is giving her, giving Kay the finger because she, the killer knows that Kay was a fan of the Carpenters, you know. So, so he's playing this music over the the this video where she's, you know, she's she's getting a message from this horror. Anyway, well, you know, you're I'm not the only fan. one. Well, you're not the only one actually who is a huge fan because, and you know how hard it is to sell books now as being an author. But she's sold over a hundred million books. Did you say a hundred million books? I said a hundred million books. Now I'm doing little Enos. You're doing little Enos. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. hundred well, million I'm books. I'm going to let her sold. pick up a tab next time we yeah, have dinner. Yeah, she That's can afford it. Sure. Yeah. No, yeah. No, a hundred million books. She is a huge bestseller. Her books instantly go on the yeah. bestseller list the second they are released. And today... We're going to talk to her. We have been, you know, the great pleasure of a visit from somebody who's now become a personal friend and somebody that I've, I've admired for 25 years. Maybe we'll get some forensic yeah, juice forensic and advice or whatever you yeah. get with forensics. Good morning, wherever you are. Good afternoon. Well, there's my favorite person. How are you? I'm fantastic. Say hi to Tracy Jackson. Good morning, Hello, Patricia. Hello, Jackson. 
I see you on Twitter, so I've heard I, I get all these positive vibes. Oh, thank you. We're so happy to have you here with us via via technology. Well, I'm happy to be with you. Where yeah. are, Where are you, Patricia? I'm actually in L.A. Oh, oh my God, you are. Well, I am. Hold on a second. Come on, on over. We're at. I wish. Oh my God. Oh my God. Good. And is the I'm good doctor is Stacey the good doctor Gruber and... with you as well? No, she be she's coming in tonight. Oh my God. She... Excellent. Yes. How are you? I'm really good, and and you know we're thrilled to have you here and everything. I was just sitting, you know, it's funny because I've been a fan, as you know, of your writing for 206 years. Well, 206 years for as long as you have been writing, <laughs> I've been paying attention and loving it. So you would think that I would be greatly informed, but of course I jumped on Wikipedia and I started looking at some numbers that are just so impressive and all. And it, and you know, I just I love Scarpetta. I have had a thing for Scarpetta, your chief main character, since I was this high i just love what you do and it's well, been a monstrous too. success from the very beginning your first your first book postmortem did hit the, the the hat trick the major three awards for for your first novel yeah that was really bizarre because when that when my first book came out in 1990 it, i had absolutely no reason to think that i was going to have a career as a writer because um you know, I was told that nobody wanted to read about a woman medical examiner. I mean, somebody who's around dead bodies and goes to crime scenes and, you know, and laboratories. Who wants to know about such things? Now that seems silly. Oh, my because, God. Um, you watch television now and everybody, everybody is, is, uh, is, is emulating what you started. Well, it's, you know, I, what I like to say is um, I think what Scarpetta did, what, what my series did way back in now 25 years ago, was really simply make the world of forensics um, accessible. It's very similar to what Tom Clancy did with his techno thrillers. He made the technology of the military became a bit of a household word when before we just really didn't know about these things, but he was so you know, interested, and I used to know Tom, and it was funny because he was, you know, an insurance salesman who became interested in the military. I'm an English major. I became interested in forensics, and basically you take a really unusual field. You open the door wide, and then, of course, television, film, and everything else will follow. Patricia, what led you, because you were, in, you were involved in forensics, and then you, what led you to writing, what what was the jump in you that made you decide that I would take this? You'd take this knowledge and put it on the page and make interesting stories out of it. Well, this is the, this is the thing that is really confusing about my background, and almost nobody, no matter how many times I tell anybody, it's so hard to compute. But interestingly, it's the other way around. I started out as a writer because um, I really just didn't think I was very good at anything else, and that's the honest truth. I became a journalist. I, uh, this was right after college, and they assigned me to the police beat. Well, this when is I in decided Charlotte, to write right? books, in Charlotte. this was in Charlotte, and when I decided, uh, you know, my first book was a biography, and then I decided to write crime novels because I was really interested in crime, and I just had a journalistic approach, which is something I recommend to everybody. If you're really interested in something, go get your flashlight out and walk into the cave and go see what's in there. 
And that's exactly what I did. I walked into that cave and I shone a light on the walls and I saw DNA and lasers and instruments and chemicals and all these things that help you excavate a crime scene and the human body itself. And I said, okay, that's what I want to learn. So I got a job at the medical examiner's office and became a student basically for six years. That's how, so that's how that happened. I'm just a, a little old English major at heart. <laughs> and then when you were, when you were, do, it's so interesting that you did that. And then when you were, when you were studying and when you went and did this, at that point you realized other people will be really interested in this and I can start weaving stories. And did you start thinking up stories with the things that you saw there in the room? How did, how did you put all that together? Well, you know, what the first thing I did when I decided I want to write crime novels, and this was really way back in 1984 when I first was going to put my uh, hand to this, I went out and bought a few used paperbacks of murder mysteries because I'd never, oddly enough, I'd never read any murder mysteries. That wasn't what I was into. So um, so I, I, I started trying to do what people like Dorothy Sayers and Agatha Christie and so forth had done. did not work at all for me because you can't be in a medical examiner's office and one minute and going upstairs and investigating poisons in the toxicology lab and then somehow make it all about buried treasure or somebody putting something in a will. You know, all the sorts of things that we associate with your more traditional mysteries. So I had to go through a very big period of sort of deconstructing and starting all over and figuring out how to be a fiction writer. And it took me a number of years. I mean, postmortem was my fourth attempt at a crime novel. Um, I'd written three before that that all got rejected, as they should have. They were not good. Um, but it, it's a learning curve like anything. But what I tell people, it's, it's, and if I think of music or I think of the things that you both do, it's always walk through the world with wonder and ask questions and look and be open. Um, you never know what might strike you as something that's worth telling a story about. One of the things I love about postmortem and, and looking back at it is is that I think one of the things you talk about in the book is it's unfortunate that there's not a DNA base where or you know things that exist now in 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 the world of, of crime and and you know and the like that did not exist 25 years ago that you actually talk about in postmortem. I know you know that it's so strange because if I were to try to write postmortem again today, it'd be really difficult because that case. You know, DNA was pivotal, and when I wrote that book, nobody knew anything about DNA. I mean, it had not even really been met the Fry standard in court. I mean, it was just beginning to be accepted as evidence in court. So, in criminal cases, so that was that was what was really fun about that book is I got to show people things that they just had never seen before and they were the very same things that I'd started seeing in the morgue um, I mean that's how I knew about it all so I was very fortunate you know you talk about gratitude all the time well I'm very grateful that I was in the right place at the right time sure sure did you have an aha moment in the middle of that book as many as many writers do I've had them. I've never had a success like you've had. But did you have an aha moment when you went, yes, this after this, this is I'm on to something here. If this doesn't work, I'm really not sure what to do. I mean, did you understand that this was as big a deal as it was? 
I think the aha moment for me in this, again, in all art, whether it's even a visual art or audible art, all art, you, you have to find your voice. You just have to find your voice. And as a storyteller, the reason I had an aha moment with postmortem is, is when I finally got into that book and I decided to do something very, very different, you know, to take on the persona of this woman medical examiner and write about the real things I was seeing, uh, you know, at work that were so painful that I did not want to embrace them with my imagination. But I decided to do it, and I found my voice. And there was a point when I was beginning that book and really getting into it, that I knew this was it. I knew it. And so I was really kind of shocked when it started getting rejected, too. I mean, it made the rounds for the better part of a year in New York City. I think it was at least eight major houses rejected it. And at that point, I said, okay, four strikes, you really are out. Uh, Try to go back to journalism. And then, you know, Scribner's took it on by a prayer, and then it went on to win, like, fight five crime awards which you just no one's ever done before since so so that's what made that all happen and it was um i was very very lucky it's you know those are my favorite stories patricia when you hear about the books and the movies and or the whatever form it is that gets rejected and rejected and rejected and then someone brave takes it on some editor you know someone finds it and then they and it becomes not just a one hit like you, but it becomes a decade-long string of, of, a, of a brand. And, you know, it's like Mad Men was turned down by four studios before, sure. you know, and for years. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd love those stories. What do you say to people? And I know many people must come to you. And when they say, how do you get through the rejection? How do you keep your spirit going through one book, two books, three books, four books, then eight rejections? It's, it's, what's your advice? Well, I think, first of all, you, you, the, my number one rule is you will never be good at anything unless you're willing to be bad at it. Yeah, so nice. jump into the fray and get ready, ready to have a nightmarish time because you're going you're gonna to write awful stuff. You're going to hate what you do. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to realize how lonely it is to sit at a desk, whether you're composing a book or a song. Um, some things you just have to do alone, and we don't really like that very much. Human beings like company. So be prepared to not have a very good time. And then number two, listen to what Flannery O'Connor said. She didn't like writing as much as she loved having written. And boy, do I relate to that. Love that. Writing is hard. So work. You, you know, I think that we live in a world where people think that we're not supposed to have discomfort. Well, we're going to have discomfort if we do anything well. Um, and you shouldn't give up. So I think a lot of it is an endurance James, James Lee Brooke, I think, was rejected his, with his first Dave Robichon novel, was rejected, I think, as many as 49 times, I think is the number, wow. before he finally That's found crazy. a publisher. One of the things I love, I love about the books, and it's interesting, of course I'm drawn to it because of, of the environment, and it's so fascinating and all, but I think, for, and I don't know if it was because of, of your, you know, you're, you're in that world, that, that what really jumps off the page at me is, your, is the relationships. I mean, your relationship with Marino is so real to me that it's like I know I know 
I see your relationship, you know, Scarpetta's relationship to, to Marino and to Benton. You know, I've always thought that Benton might have been written re- designed after me, but, but there's, there, there's, there's, those are amazing. If he could play the piano and compose music, maybe. <laughs> but you know, but but especially the the relationship with Marino, the you, know, the you know the the edge of that relationship, the understanding of who he is, the way we get to look at his character through through Kay's eyes is is a huge part of, of the, the joy of reading your books to me. It is fun, and honestly, at this stage, the relationships with the characters and all the ins and outs of the things about them are really what keep me doing it. I mean, there's only so much new stuff you can say about forensic science and medicine and, and tech technology and our population's ability to weaponize almost anything to destroy our planet. I mean, yes, I will always have all those types of things because they're the stock and trade of of what these stories are about, but it's the characters and it's mining their psyches and what they're going through and what they're living in at any moment. And that's really what the adventure is about. I mean, the crimes are just an excuse to throw a big house party. Patricia, how did how has it changed for you, if at all? Because when you started, there were not all these forensic shows on TV, which now, as you know, there's just a plethora of them. Has that changed in any way, the way you might attack a story, the way you may tell a story, that you had to kind of go into deeper detail? How, how has that affected your writing? Well, I, I sort of feel like, you know, I created Frankenstein or a monster, and then it, now it lives in my basement, and I can't get away <laughs> from it. And, that, and that's what forensics feel like to me, is this forensic Frankenstein is chained downstairs somewhere, um, and I always know it's there, and I have to deal with it. And it's it what what I made accessible then became something in direct competition with the very thing that I'm doing, which is weird to think about. I never saw that coming because I'm silly and stupid. I should have anticipated. <laughs> we wouldn't say that. Well, you have a much better NCIS. informed reader right now then because, you know, <laughs> if, if they're like me and I will watch one episode of Forensic Files after another, I'm totally caught up in that world and you're probably in, to blame for that. But it, but the fact is you, you, you have an audience at this point that knows a lot more about the subject matter than when you started out informing us. You are so right about that, and the good part about that is I really don't have to spend two pages describing what an autopsy table looks like. Everybody knows. I mean, so I can actually um, not have to be so um, didactic and a little bit textbooky like I've had to be in the past because someone didn't know what a scanning electron microscope is. Um, I don't have to go into quite as much detail. I can be a little bit more illustrative in fun sorts of ways with that kind of information. But... It's what this, what, to go back to your question, the, the trend that became a tsunami, this whole forensic thriller, thriller genre that Scarpetta inadvertently created, what it's done to me at this point in my career is she literally wears all of her ingenious know-how like a good old pair of shoes, but what we're most interested in is how she thinks and what she's going to do with what she knows, sure. as opposed to doing a procedural or a cookbook to show people what she does, if you see the difference. So you get to you get to have much more fun with your characters and your storylines that are just not all involved in that, you know, the the, the daily to's and fro's of, of forensic study. The the character I you have know, to the irony it, Go ahead, Patricia. Sorry. I was only going to say that that in reality television, I think now people would want to look in Scarpetta's makeup bag and see what kind of face powder she uses. <laughs> you know? 
Well, I think... want to know what her deodorant is. That's where... I mean, so you, you can get more into character now because people are... We're very much into the age of the confessional. I think, I think that's true, and I think I would personally much rather read your books than I would have to see it on TV in those very graphic ways. My kids are obsessed with forensics. It's, it's fascinating to see how it's taken over. I mean, I, my girls will just sit there by the hour watching these, you know, everybody being cut up and dissected, and, you know, it's just extraordinary how it's taken over the imagination. But with, with, but with you, it was, you know, character, and you really got into the story of it. It wasn't just gore for gore's sake, and I think that's, for me, what sets you apart. I think the other thing that, that I have to jump in and say is that for me, those real lean-in moments are, for example, you know, in, in your last book, if, if you know, somebody walks up and, and mentions that Lucy's flying that day and, and you say, how, how would this person know that Lucy's flying that day? All of a sudden, I'm, I'm immediately leaning into that, and, and it's how important is that clue? What's going on? The kid's riding by on a bicycle or washing a car. You know, it's those, those little moments in your riding that, you know, some of them, and some of them are red herrings. Some of them are just, you know, just something to, to, to kind of raise your, the anxiety level as you're reading. But they're also, inform, I think they inform us about, about Kay and what she worries about and what she's thinking about. It's, it's, it's always fascinating. Well, I think if you're just an innately paranoid person like I am, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you, know, you know that moment where you're walking down the sidewalk and you go, why is that person looking at me? She's and then you realize me, they, yeah. maybe they weren't. But it's, it's you know, I, I, those are what Wordsworth called the little spots of time. It's something that jumps out and becomes a metaphor for something much bigger. And the very things you're pointing out are all indicative of the way our mind works and where we're these creatures that had to exist in a very dangerous world for thousands and thousands of years gone by. And what we do is we, we target stuff. We land on things. We hear something. We see something. We go, um, how did he know that? Or why would he know the helicopter's going over right now? Or what is his involvement? I mean, why did we have to do that? It's a survival skill. Sure. And so if you can plug into those facets of human nature, you're hitting on universal truths because everybody feels this way. You know, you're one of two writers that, that I love, Michael Connolly being the other one who started out as a, as a crime writer for a newspaper and all. Uh, and if we go back to that place in, in the beginnings of your career and all, were you absolutely loving that, having that crime beat? I mean, did that just, did your world really change when you got that assignment? That changed my world more than anything, and the irony of it is, is I was so upset when they wanted to give it to me. I, I wanted to write feature stories because I fancied myself one day being a novelist and telling wonderful tales of, you know, romance and intrigue and travel and adventure. <laughs> And so when they called me into the office and said, we're promoting you to reporter, and I was like, oh, my God. And they said, and you're going to have the police beat, cop shop, as they called it, you know, working uh, nine, uh, you know, 4 o'clock to midnight every day. I thought that was the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. I wasn't interested in crime, and then I got addicted to it. Well, that's what, we, that's what we call no is a gift in our, in our gratitude and trust world. That, and it's a question yeah. we would have asked you is when has no been a great gift in your life or something that you didn't want to do become the latchkey for changing your entire world? Well, 
And that clearly was. That's yes. That I've had a I've had more no's than yeses, and all of them have ended up being positive, because a lot of times the no's are far more important than the yes because it does move you in a different direction. A big no for me is I didn't get into any graduate schools either when I after college, and so I had to take the job at the newspaper because I said, well, you know, I mean, I, I had a lot of no's. And you are so right to point that out as a very important part of what polishes us. Without those no's, we won't amount to much, really, in my opinion. And so many people are flattened by them. You know, I mean, so many people, they just give up and go away and just settle. And it's, it's the strong that survive. It is Darwinian, but you're certainly living proof of that. No, it really is the strong who survive, and it is Darwinian or not, but it's also, I believe, that humans have more willpower than we give ourselves credit for. I also tell people, hey, don't, see, here's the problem with DNA. We've also gotten very spoiled that we blame everything on genetics, and while genetics is absolutely our blueprint, we also have a little bit of say-so about, you know, what color the wallpaper is and whether the, the, the acoustics are good in that room or whether it's tastefully decorated. So I tell people, hey, discipline. You can work on some of this stuff. Don't give up. Um, or do it even if you don't feel like it. It's, we, do, we have tremendous power to, to move against gravity no matter how hard. And, we just, and, and if you can't do that, your, your ability to move forward is going to be very limited. It's so funny you just used that word because my next question to you literally was you, you have to be a very disciplined person. And what is your discipline technique? What is, what is a Patricia Cromwell day like? When do you write? Do you write? Because I used to tell people to sit in the same place when I taught writing and what have you. Do you have a, do you have a special place, a time? What, what is your schedule like when you're working well, on a book? My favorite, well, my absolute favorite schedule is I wake up early, particularly if I'm by myself like I am right now because I'm, I'm in Los Angeles here alone right now. Um, and I love to just make my coffee and go to my desk and watch the sun come up as I work. Because that's when creativity is the friendliest to me. It's sort of like a sleepy animal that tucks up next to me in the chair, and then then the day gets frenetic and it's hiding under the bed. You know, and that's kind of <laughs> what my that. imagination seems to do. <laughs> you know, so but but that's what I I really I love the quiet and um, but it's weird because. It's a discipline, but it's sort of not. I feel like the real discipline in my life comes from simply doing all the things I need to do that pave the way or open up the space for me to be creative. Creativity, composing you know, a story or, or music, I feel like it's a relationship, and I'm more respectful of it than to say it's simply discipline. I, I think it wants me to want to see it and to spend time with it and for it to be an act of love and not just something I've... I do by rote that I force myself to endure. I don't think creativity is very nice to you if you treat it that way any more than a person is. But my discipline is all the rest of what I do, which means a lot of times doing things I don't want to do, even if it's going for a walk or getting enough sleep or taking better care of myself, sitting on a mood that's, not gonna, that's gonna only get me in trouble if I give in to it. It's all those struggles of what we do and we don't do on a regular basis. We talked to, uh, to William Powers, a, a 
yesterday, I guess it was, and, and uh, you know, who wrote Hamlet's Blackberry and was talking about the, the way that the digital age has changed, the way we all operate, the way that, that, that you were constantly being poked and, and you know, the, the constant distractions. Of, and, you know, you have a successful career. You add, add to everything going on socially and, and, the, and the like, and you add all the work you have to do to get out and promote whatever it is you've created, whether it's a song or an album or, or an, a book and the like. And I, one of the con- things that I mentioned to him is, is that I felt like in, in this time of my life when I'm so busy that my creative spurts are, are, are really fruitful. I mean, it, it's amazing how in a small amount of time I'm getting, it feels like more work done and actually more quality work. Maybe it's just arrogance that I would think it's quality work, but it feels like I'm getting more work done more quickly. Have you found the, the, that that's, you've had that kind of a change in your life where, you, where in those little treasured windows of opportunity to sit down and do the work, it's coming more quickly and, and easier? I do, actually, in some ways. I think it's interesting that you point that out. And I think also so much of it is about your attitude because one of the things that, I mean, that you are, you both are so much about is, is being positive and, you know, shaking off the negativity. And even when there's a no, to turn it into a yes and figure out in the grand scheme of things what this is supposed to mean to us and do for us. And so... So, so all this technology, the interruptions, the, the good side of that is I also find it's a lot of stimulation. And stimulation is a good thing, especially as we get older. It keeps us, wakes us up, and it's, it gets me energized, you know, it, it gets me excited, and all of that is productive. Um, if you put me on a deserted island and I had all the, the quiet in the world, I'd probably never get anything done at all. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I know. I understand <laughs> that. I understand that. We, Patricia. I've also found that I was just only just going to say really quickly that I've also found, and you're a good case in point, Paul. You know, it's been such a great thrill to get to know you. Is that having exposure to other artists and other art forms, whether it's music or movies or television shows? I have found that that has been a wonderful tonic for me. It's been inspiring, and it's given me all kinds of really amazing ideas. Do you read, do you read it as well? Because I find that uh, that while I love everything else, all the other media, and like I don't listen to a lot of music. I was wondering if you read a great, if you know, because because when I go home and I joke about watching golf in my underwear being the high point of my day, if I can get an hour <laughs> to do that, or you know, or the like. But but I wonder if if you continue to read. I don't. I almost never read crime fiction, um, and I don't read true crime hardly ever either because it. It's just. It's exactly what you say. I'm so steeped in all of it. I. I tend to love nonfiction. Like I just finished reading. Um, well, I, I was reading a biography of Charles Dickens just recently, which and I, I and I re- then I was reading something about Queen Victoria. I love things like that. I love biographies, so I tend to go in areas that give me ideas about characters and the way people live and not so much things about the way they die. Yeah, I got you. I understand that. You know, one of the questions that we were tweeting, you know, Tracy put out a tweet this morning, which was basically, if you had a chance to ask, ask you know, Patricia Cornwall, you know, a, a, a question, you know, if you, you know, if you, there's something you'd like to know, you'd give us, tweet us back. And, and somebody wrote in, you know, where the, you know, those basic storylines, you know, they, they, and you, and you kind of partway answered it because I was going to ask if, if you know what's going on in the newspaper in the, in the way of unsolved crimes ever, ever worked its way into what you work but the question somebody wanted to ask you is where those initial where those initial storylines base storylines to a book come from 
Well, first of all, I always start with something that I've researched, and the, one of the biggest things I have to figure out when I'm going to start any Scarpetta book is what is going to be the, me- the, the method of death, in other words, the weapon. What's, what is she going to be up against in this one that is not going to be exactly what meets the eye, you know, when you're first starting to read it where you go, wait a minute, something's weird about this. What's going to stump our hero and, of course, in the end, um, not prevail against her either, of course. So once I sort of know that, then I start thinking about what the first crime scene's going to be, what the body's going to look like, and it sort of starts going from there. I try to so completely inhabit the character of Scarpetta when I'm writing one of these books that I literally am doing what she would do. I just follow it. In a way, I don't even you, plan it. You, in some, in some ways, it sounds as if, as if you give yourself the same, the same task that that Kay actually has. Is that you know, you, 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 you create the crime, and then back your way into it, into solving it, or, 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 or move forward into solving it. It real, it, it's true. I have, it's a very strange method, and I. I would not recommend it for a lot of people. <laughs> yes. But for Do you example, outline, incidentally? I, what I do is, once she has the case, now I cheat because I already know what happened, but she doesn't. But I let her work it, and then I work it with her. And so literally, I don't always know from one scene to the next what's going to happen because it's whatever she decides to do. But what that does in the end is it gives it, I think, um, an energy of authenticity and immediacy because I'm sort of living it as I'm writing it. Therefore, I think people are living it as they're reading it. Sure. Um, and that, that's what works for me, but it's a process that makes you very insecure because you never know if it's going to keep working. Well, it's good you have a little insecurity because when we're reading it, what happens is every now and then I'll, be, I'll turn the page and we, we find we've now entered a building that is, it is an abandoned building. There's a basement and she's headed into the basement. And I go, <laughs> oh my God, the level of anxiety Don't is intense, in intense. Well, that's really funny because, you know, when I was a little kid, I'd get spooked by, oh, my God, I had such an imagination. I could scare myself silly in one second and go run out in the street and stand in the blazing sun because then the boogeyman wouldn't get me, you know, that type of thing. So now what I do is I take that childish imagination of knowing what would frighten somebody, and I put her right in the middle of it. But, of course, she's this uh, – she does. she's not a fear-driven person. <laughs> Nothing bothers her. And it's like uh, – uh, you keep talking about that weird banging noise you hear in the basement. Don't you think you should get out of there now? Why don't you leave? She's just <laughs> standing around. That. Where's Marino? <laughs> and there's also the great cinematic technique of in, in film, there'll be the scare and then the, the relief moment after the scare. And then there's when the real huge scare is coming. So when I have something, I have those moments, I'm turning the page. But you're, you know, Kay, the, your novels are not predictable. And, and it, again, I go back to the thing that sustains me, the things that, that has one after another after another that has, has kept me, you know, reaching you know, for your books is, is, is the just, you know, the, 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 the wonderful relationships, the marvelous relationships. Get, get, watching, you know, you, you, you know, you develop your relationship with your niece, with Lucy, and how that how that grew through the through the the, the various volumes. It's just fantastic. It's just it be, it becomes like family. I think for those of us who are are huge fans, it feels like family. It is family, and I guess you know, I've always said that. And I never would have imagined this in the beginning of my career, but this is a true statement, as weird as it sounds. My characters have created me as much as I've created them. 
they have created a family for me. They have created skill sets for me that I never would have imagined myself doing, whether it was getting my pilot's license or or riding motorcycles or, or scuba diving or, or just whatever it is that I needed to do. Studying science when I fled from science in college. I dropped chemistry in one day after practically oh setting the lab God. on fire. You know, and so they've, they've, they've done, they've created me too. And it, what that should remind people of is this unbelievable ability we has a, have as human beings to recreate ourselves on a regular basis. So Kay started scuba diving before you did, or, or did you fall in love with scuba diving and then decide that, that Kay needed to jump into that, that storyline that took her in no, underwater? That, that, that dirty, rotten thing, she already knew how to do it, and I didn't know she knew how to do it until she was getting ready to work an underwater crime scene. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I don't know how to do that. So I had to go to dive school. And you fell in love with it. And uh, I had to do that exact same dive. So no, she, she is, um, she's not very considerate towards me. She already knows how to do things, and if I don't figure it out, too bad. She's pushing you. She's constantly pushing you. Yes, well, she's much more accomplished than I am. It's I limp along after her, like the Boswell with my pen over my little oh. notepad. <laughs> and image. do you write with it? That's a good question. Do you write on the computer or do you write with longhand? I write on the computer, but I take notes in notebooks, so I always have a little notebook. Um, don't do it as much as I used to. It's interesting with so much available on the Internet, um, and then oftentimes, sometimes I can simply take pictures with my phone, and that helps me later when I want to describe something. So that's another, you talked about technology earlier, and wow, have I ever seen changes in basically the archives that you leave behind now compared to 25 years ago. I mean, it's, it's, it's really quite stunning and in many ways kind of sad. Well, that's interesting because Tracy's husband is Glenn Horowitz, who's one of the, you know, this country's maybe one of the world's major archivists, who's, uh, wow. that, that's, you've just stepped into his world and also, Tracy? <laughs> well, sure, well he, sells, uh, he sells the archives of writers, but it, it has changed enormously, and uh, what people have left behind in terms of paper and communication and letters, and, and like you say, notebooks, all those things that writers have used from the beginning are you know oh, pe- pe- so people important. are going to have evernote files you know that you that you leave to me that you leave well, to institutions you know what, no matter what, as great it is to have digital scans of everything, having been somebody who looked, you know, who the reason I was able to do the Jack the Ripper investigation is because I, I had access to the original letters that he wrote the police and the press, the, the, the Jack the Ripper letters. When you look at an original document, it is not the same thing as a scan. It has a life of its own. And you hold it up to a light and it tells you a story. And you find out a stain on it is probably a biological fluid because of the way it fluoresces and therefore for what the heck did that person put on that taunting, awful letter that he wrote? I mean, it's just, um, I'm a, I love the world of paper. I mean, I myself read almost everything electronically, and I write electronically, but archives are the life and breath of what we leave behind, and I, I just hope that we don't lose a lot of that because we're sort of losing our history and our treasures if we do. Oh, we are. I want to see the coffee stain. You know, well, it's also things like you know, and, and you're a writer, so you'll appreciate it. But so many, there are no longer printed manuscripts and, and typescripts, and that have been annotated by the yeah. author and the editor. You know, you remember when you started out that your editor would say something, and you'd write a note, then you'd cross it out or whatever, and you'd see in actual time the 
evolution of this story through the writer's own mind and, and with the editor's help. And now, as you know, how we edit with just, you know, clicking the, the X, the whatever color X you want, right. you know, are you going to keep it or not keep it? We've lost all of those all of those historical documents that showed us how a writer thought and progressed and, and changed a character and a story. I would and love to incidentally... We have, but... Go ahead. I'm sorry, ahead. Patricia. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Patricia. Uh, I, I was only going to say that, um, but again, to sort of beat the drum of having the positive attitude of looking for the no that becomes a yes, because this technology in many ways becomes a no, because you lose these wonderful paper records that we don't create anymore, um, and we don't see the, the very personal artifacts that are left by a typewriter, whether it's a flying capital or something that you remember you always had trouble with. All those things become part of our history. But the thing that becomes a yes about it is it's sort of like what electronics and te- technology have done for music. It's has also given us an ability to do things in a way we haven't done them before. I mean, my writing has changed because technology has changed. My style has changed. Uh, the, the, the computers change the way I compose things. The keyboards do. The, the software packages, even right down to whether I'm going to use a color or a font, which was a, a thought I would have never had 20 years ago. So it's 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 all a tremendous flux but it's not all bad either some of it's pretty amazing oh no there's no question we couldn't do what we do without it do you do you keep everything patricia are you are you well archived have you saved everything over the years i have i have an archivist my and i um have been very diligent uh, have a pretty, actually pretty, pretty cool archive, particularly because of all the Jack the Ripper stuff and and all the the evidence and things involved with that. Um, what what happens though is no matter how diligent you are about archiving, we don't have as much that's archivable. I mean, by the time my manuscript goes to typeset now, it's you know it's been edited so many times through files that get overlaid and recopied and saved as this or that or the other, it's not like you can really, you really lose the trail of all that because you're not typing up a brand new page every time you change something. No, and you're not printing it. You can't see it anymore. No, it's sad. I I miss, you know what I always like is whole, I don't know how you feel. I always like when you finish something, I always loved printing, even in the computer age, and I've been writing pretty much in the computer age, but printing it up and holding those papers. You, you know, you really felt like it wasn't as you didn't have just a number. You had those pages sitting in your hot little hands. And I always liked the feel of that. Did you? I do. And it used to be funny you would tell that story because, in the, you know, what I used to do is literally I'd fly the, the manuscript to New York and ha- hand it to my agent. And it was a really big deal to plop that big thing down on her desk <laughs> once a year. Um, now it's emailed, you know, and it's... It certainly is easier, and it's made it's fast-tracked everything considerably. But you know, we're just lucky we've got to see it both ways. I I am very grateful that I grew up when I did, but yet I'm still young enough to change and do all these things sure. that other people are doing today. So we're we, we're pretty lucky. We, I think we are lucky. No, we we and we we remembered, and, and probably my guess is many of our work habits have a bit of both. I I think you know, wouldn't you say that? I think those of us who started before. Have and hadn't been able to employ the new, but there's a bit of that old still stuck in in the way we operate. 
I think so, and I think that um, honestly, uh, a lot of people could learn from some of these things that we we learned a long time ago. Because one thing that we had to learn in the era that we grew up in is you had to learn how to entertain yourself. Because there were like three—I mean, I sound like a five thousand years old, but I mean, <laughs> there were three television channels when I was growing up. Three, you and me and both. So, and there were only certain shows that we were even allowed to watch. Um, there were no computers or anything like that. The, uh, games were things like Candyland and Monopoly. So you know what you did? You entertained yourself. You wrote stories. You learned to play piano. or You did all sorts of things. And it is really good for your mental health to use your imagination and become your own best friend. And I think a lot of people these days are extremely lonely because they don't even know how to be alone with themselves. They're constantly on social media or looking at the latest news feed, and you need to have spaces. It's good for you. My kid, I, I agree with you so 100%. And yesterday uh, when we were talking to Bill Powers about this and, and how one finds that time where we need our technology and it allows us to, not, say, not live in the city that the, where our work is and it allows us to be able to do things from afar, take a vacation and send your manuscripts. You know, it allows us so many advantages and, and freedoms that we never had before, yet at the same time, it's a constant noise that's ringing in our ears and pounding on our heads. And to be able to find that quiet space in which to contemplate and let just imagination take over and and creativity take over and and just do nothing is vital and and I think with my I see it with my children they just don't know how to find it as uh. you say you know they they don't know how to find the quiet space and and now and I love it and I'm just going to with a question I wanted to ask you you know with binge watching television which is something we never <laughs> had the advantage of does does do you binge watch do you do you guys sit I home do, and but- binge we we do, but all things in moderation. We I mean it's not like every that that's just something we do on and off all day long. I mean we have our little our little designated box for binge watching where we're eating dinner and just going to do that for watch a couple of shows that we really like. But 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 not to the extent that that's all we're ever doing. Obviously, I couldn't get any work done. Oh, no. if that's all I ever did. Oh God, no! I, w- I wasn't I wasn't what? assuming that at all. There's no way. But and, and, no, no, and, no. But what I mean is. What you put your finger on is the human condition is we are lonely. We are. We are lonely to our souls, which is why we do so many things to try to medicate ourselves. And so the worst thing that you can do, if that is your condition, is to have so much chatter and static going on all the time that you don't fill that empty space with something you create because that is the only cure. I mean, it really is. That's why, you know, we we learn to tell stories, we learn to write music, and we feel um, the need to do these things. And I'll tell you a wonderful metaphor for that. When I was doing the biography of Ruth Graham, who was married to Billy Graham, but that's that's not the context of why I was good friends with her. But long story short, I was up in her home one day, and she had a canary, and she she'd walk from room to room, and she'd hang her bird from this one of the exposed beams in this amazing house that she'd built. And one day, we were sitting in the living room, and the bird, she'd left it in another room, and it was making the biggest racket you ever heard. It was just singing up a storm. And I looked at her, and I said, why does it do that? And she said, because it's alone. And I said, oh, now I know why I, why I write. <laughs> That's so, wonderful. That's... If, you can't, if you can't be alone, you won't sing. 
Mm. And if you don't sing, you will be lonely. Wow. So yeah. if I could teach that to kids, put... I was, dri- I was driving... I was driving... fill it. I was driving through uh, through the the valley one one a couple of years ago, and I saw a little boy playing with a, a bit of picket fence as a sword, and he actually had a paper hat on. You know, how you used to be able to make. And and I stopped and I watched yeah. him for a few minutes because I thought, when are you ever going to see this again? This is something out of out of uh, a, you know a Saturday Evening Post cover from from our right. past. When are we ever going to see anything? There's one something I want to bring up before we lose you, Patricia. Is you mentioned it briefly, but I think the you know the extreme cold case file of, of cold case files has has to be Jack the Ripper. And and the the your fascination with that, you, you know, you're beginning to decipher the clues right down to the watermark and the letter and all. I think is something that everybody would like to hear you you. T- talk a little bit about how, about how you you know how you began to you know in, in I think in the paintings you began to see crime scenes and I can't remember remember the name of the painter uh, oh Walter Sickert yeah would yes. you would you, uh, would and, you care to yes, talk about think, that well it just very briefly when I was in England in London in 2001 for for a certain reason I incidentally I was given a tour of Scotland Yard and met with somebody who an investigator who began talking about the Jack the Ripper crimes I'd never read anything about them and wasn't even interested to be honest but when he started talking about all of it and they drove me around and was showing me some areas where these had occurred back in 1888 and onward and I said well who were the suspects? And he rattled off some names. I said, based on what? He said, based on nothing. There's only theories. And I said, well, is there any evidence left in the case? He said, well, yes, the only evidence left in in the case um, are the letters that Jack the Ripper wrote to the police and the media. I've never heard anything about this, but I've always been interested in forensic documents um, examination. So I set about to go see these letters, and when I began to look at them, and also having been told that Walter Sickert was one name that that had come up in the course of, of these theories about who the killer may have been, this artist, a Victorian artist, well, things started fitting together in a very peculiar way that started really pointing the compass needle directly at Walter Sickert. Um, and I mounted this massive investigation. I employed, um, you know, board-certified uh, forensic scientists. We tried DNA. We did documents examination. We did all sorts of things, not to mention just a huge investigation in general of going back to primary source materials like um, you do in a nonfiction book. And I wrote a book about it. And uh, actually, the remake of that book, which is now called Jack the Ripper, The Secret Life of Walter Sickert, that is going to be coming out probably sometime in the next year. I've got um, Amazon is going to be doing something really interesting with it. We're going to do some really high-tech, cool electronic version that hopefully allows people to also look at some of the images that I have that shows them pictures of some of these matches, the watermarks, and all these things that I talk about in the book. That sounds really interesting. We're really looking for, well, we will all look forward to that. Um, Patricia, this morning, uh, I tweeted out to our followers that we were going to be speaking with you today and to find out if any of the, they had questions. Uh, I know Paul, I asked you one. We got a question from Tamara Small Jarvis, and she would like to know... She says that my sons and I have shared all her books. When will we get a Scarpetta movie? Which is a question I'm sure you have been asked many times. 
Well, I think we're hitting critical mass with the Scarpetta movie. It's, you know, Fox 2000 is the studio, and they're, it's right, it's still in that development period of working, of the script, of try, they're, the, the studio's still trying to get the script to the point that they want it to be. So it's in that phase, and hopefully, um, you know, we're going to know something a lot more fairly soon. But I think it's looking, I think it's looking pretty positive um, this time. I mean, it's been the strangest thing. I call Scarpetta the runaway bride. She gets to Hollywood and then she vanishes on me. And she has done it over and over and damn over again. And so I'm hoping she may not ride off on her horse again this time. But we'll see. I think that's more Hollywood than Scarpetta. I have to. I think that that's it's that happened. is the it's, development know, process. You know, it's, it's not. It's not. It's it's you've got to capture her just right, and it's not easy to do that when you you have a character that's got such an unusual profession. Um, it, it's hard, and I think because because what she does is informed by how she thinks, and how she thinks is informed by what she does. So it's all inextricably connected. So if you don't know how to think like a forensic expert, a forensic pathologist, you know a forensic radiologist and a, and a colonel in the Air Force and all these things this woman is, um, then how, if you don't know how to think like that, how can you possibly know what she's going to do or say? So it's daunting, but it can get done, and I believe it's going to get done. Have you thought... I think we're going to see our girl on the big screen, and that would be wonderful. It would be great. Has it ever come up to, especially with what's going on in TV right now, uh, has it come up to make her a series, to turn the to books into a series? Well, that series? would be really fun, too. That, you know, that would be really hugely fun, and I guess the sky's the limit. Uh, you could, I mean, who knows what's going to happen, but um, television is so incredible these days that you certainly could make an amazing television series um, on Scarpetta and the Scarpetta books. But either one or both, we'll see what happens. But I do think we're going to see her sooner rather than later. It's, I mean, it's crazy to think it's been 25 years and we've never seen Scarpetta on TV or in a movie um, it's almost a little unprecedented for a series character who is as well known as she is. But it really is. I mean, it's a long. I mean, Hollywood. I, I, Hollywood's a long time. But that for someone like Scarpetta and and her fame level, her global fame level, and and the types of stories, it really is unprecedented. It's it's just bizarre. But all right, well, it, well, we'll, we'll we all go. send a good thought out there for this to happen very soon. I want to send a good but thought out go. for for uh, Michael Orland and and uh, Dr. Gruber who who are res- really responsible for us becoming friends and all. And I have to say that that I th- I can foresee great success for Stacy Gruber's as a songwriter and as a singer as well. You oh, you happen oh to be married God. to somebody with. I'm going to call her. <laughs> I'm going to call her the minute I hang up. She'll be so excited that well, it's, that. Well, she's such she, a good writer I mean, and you, singer you know, and and uh, power, powerful. Well, just remember, before you even met Stacy, she has a, had a huge photograph of you hanging in her office. I didn't know that. that. Huge one, as big as the wall. Oh, I love that. <laughs> love that. <laughs> well, I think Scarpetta has one of you too, but I think it's a very small, intimate one that's in her wallet. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very sweet and very kind, Patricia. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today, and uh, and how, I, I hope that we get to, to sit down across from each other and eat a meal again soon. You just call me. I'm ready. I'll right. do it. Well, thank you, Patricia. It was lovely talking to you. Thank and I hope you. to meet you one of these days. And thank you for being so gracious uh, and sharing with us and, and, and our listeners. I know all of you out there are very happy to spend this hour with 
the great writer Patricia Cornwell. And thanks to all. We'll talk soon. God bless. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. You give a little love and it all comes back to you. You know you're gonna be remembered for the things that you say and do. You give a little love and it all comes back to you. You know you're gonna be remembered for the things that you say and do.